two things you can pretty much count on if you're a supply chain executive. A serious disruption is just around the corner, and you're probably not ready for it. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. A recent survey by the American Productivity and Quality Center found that a whopping 83% of companies were caught off guard by an unexpected supply chain disruption in the prior 24 months. You would think that the recent wave of tsunamis, hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, and erupting volcanoes would have spurred companies to put into place effective risk management programs. Why are they lagging? What's missing from most risk calculations today? Where should companies be focusing their efforts? How can they sell top management on the cost of an effective supply chain continuity effort? I'm pleased to be joined today by two experts from APQC. Andrea Stroud, Research Program Manager for Supply Chain Management, and Mary Driscoll, Senior Research Fellow for Finance and Risk. They give us the lowdown on what you should be doing right now to prepare for the next disaster, no matter what form it takes. So here is my conversation with Andrea Stroud and Mary Driscoll. Andrea Stroud, welcome to the program. Thank you. And Mary Driscoll, hello. Thank you very much. Appreciate having both of you here to talk about the implications of uh, supply chain risk management. Andrea, let me start with you. What, in your opinion, or where is the source, in your opinion, of the biggest risk in supply chains today? Well, um, I think one of the biggest risks really come from uh, external risk factors like high-impact natural disasters, extreme weather, political turmoil, that sort of thing. And we're, we're seeing that a, a lot of organizations aren't prepared for these sort of risks. Um, back in uh, April 2013, APQC actually conducted a survey to test the extent to which supply chain executives and, and finance managers at larger global organizations are concerned about these risks. And, and what we found is that during the past 24 months, um, the majority or, or three-fourths of, of large U.S.-based companies had experienced an unexpected supply chain disruption um, that were serious enough to draw a sustained focus or, or intervention by C-suite uh, executives. Yeah, in fact, the wording of the uh, report, as you presented it to me, was they were actually caught off guard. And also the figure, the figure that's quoted here is 83% of the organization's survey. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read a statistic like that, I'm just shocked because we've had so many natural disasters in the last few years. You would think that people would have woken up. Why do you think so few are on top of this? Well, I think part of it actually has to do with resources. I think that was probably one of the biggest factors. Um, Organizations aren't they don't have the resources to, to conduct formal assessments in some cases. Um, 
one of the things that we've seen is that almost half of organizations um, in our recent study rely on informal procedures such as, you know, site inspections or just conversations with suppliers and managers to assess potential risk. Um, and if you're relying on those type of judgments, um, what you're going to find is that your mitigation strategies are at greater risk of failure during an actual supply chain disruption. I would say as well that unless com- – there's a couple things going on. Um, unless, on the one hand, risk management or enterprise risk management, which is the ownership of risks that are – severe enough or have the potential to disrupt the company's ability to serve its customers for a serious period of time and therefore impact, say, revenue or earnings uh, for a period of time, which may be significant. Unless a company has a mature and consistent approach to risk assessment, then people at the front lines of the business lack the support, lack the tools, lack the consistent language. Uh, and approaches to assessing risk. Think of it this way. If you ask a uh, procurement manager, what do you think would be the impact on next quarter's earnings if one of our major suppliers uh, was disrupted for two weeks? They're not used to thinking in those terms. They're not going to be able to answer that question. Or you could ask that question of several different people and get a whole range of, of different answers. So we were very, very surprised, Bob, by, by these, these results. But if you hold it up to the light and look at it differently, you see that mature enterprise risk management is still a nascent managerial science. Yeah. And as a result, these assessments aren't being done in a way that protects companies uh, reliably. Yeah. Well, well, Mary, Andrea said the problem is that a lot of companies don't have resources, and I imagine a good part of that is the financial resources that they lack. Are they? Is it hard for them to make the case that they need to spend a certain amount of money to step up with these programs? Our survey showed that the majority of organizations uh, over the past couple of years have, number one, lengthened their supply chains. Uh, two-thirds also admit to having suppliers in world regions, areas of the world that are prone to extreme weather, such as the Pacific Rim or Asia. Obviously, many companies have gone global. Globalization is the new normal. When you do that, you need to build out your assessments and contingency plans as part of this new normal. But to do an adequate job of auditing suppliers that are spread out globally um, and that and to do a good job of auditing not only those suppliers, but their suppliers, suppliers, the Tier 2 and Tier 3, would require a virtual army of internal auditors. And our survey shows that CFOs just haven't been willing to put the resources. Now, I would suspect that that may be changing. We are seeing more and more companies trying to say, what can we do better? What, can we do? what is best practice? And how can we ask the right kinds of questions? Um, we don't want to just ask what's the likelihood of, of a, ne- of a neg- negative event. We want to ask questions around, well, what could happen to us even though such and such a, an event has never happened before? So I think because of new SEC rules and different regulatory 
uh, pressures on boards and senior managers, senior executives, there is more and more movement these days toward getting more serious about enterprise risk with supply chain disruption being elevated to the level of enterprise risk. Okay. I, I want to talk a little bit more about supplier assessment in a moment, but I just I want to get, get back a little earlier to kind of point number one in APQC's recommendations is to identify all supply chain risk. And my question to you, Andrea, maybe you could you could respond to this. How does a company even begin to get its arms around that? How does it begin to identify supply chain risk and then assess and prioritize those risks? Well, one of the things that we've noticed is that a good way to get a, a handle on the risk um, is, is making sure that you have that supply chain visibility or, or conduct those assessments that kind of look at uh, and take an in-depth look at, at the organization's inventory, the, lo- the location of materials at any given time. Um, you have to know the supplier processes and patterns um, because that actually allows for predictability as well as the ability to respond if, if a pattern happens to change. So, again, conducting those assessments really do help um, identify any type of supply chain uh, inefficiencies. Um, one of the things that we've noticed um, – for example, um, ATMI, uh, they're actually a provider of technologies for the semiconductor life sciences and, and flat panel display industries. They were actually also a best practice organization and uh, one of APQC's best practices study. Um, they developed a proprietary system that uh, provides it with greater visibility into the origin of its materials. And they did this by creating what it is is an alert system using information from multiple tiers of suppliers. Um, and what that alert system does is it tracks the components of, of ATMI's top revenue-generating products uh, down to the base elements, providing the company with, with a pretty clear picture of, of where things come from and, and what the components contain um, and the potential risks that are there. You know, if, uh, with this alert system, if a disruption were to occur, an organization would, would be alerted um, if any of its suppliers or, or even its supplier suppliers have been affected. Now, you mentioned the word proprietary in their case. I wonder, is that just necessary in the case of all companies approaching this issue, or is there some kind of a template, some kind of a standardized approach that companies can use as, as just as the basis for beginning a risk assessment and risk management program? I mean, there's always the the traditional um, risk management where you actually, you know, identify the risk and then you, you rate the severity of the risk and, and look at the potential of the risk actually occurring. I mean, those are traditional uh, risk tools. Um, obviously, um, there are many different tools out there, but a lot of organizations are looking at proprietary um, sources and creating them internally. I, I would. This is Mary, uh, Bob. I would add to that that there are several different dimensions. You could almost take a balanced scorecard type approach. You want to, well, traditionally the conversations around supply chain risk have revolved around the financial stability of a key vendor or the quality of materials coming from suppliers and their, their suppliers, right? But you also want to look at the surrounding macroeconomic environment to get a good feel for what are the pressures on your suppliers in China right now? Um, there is a great, for example, there's a great deal of in certain small and medium-sized 
um, manufacturing organizations. There's a lot of overcapacity because the economy has, has, has slowed down. That puts those businesses at risk for working capital and cash flow. And as a result, you may be exposed to the likelihood, you know, or increasing likelihood that one of your key vendors is going to go belly up because their, their demand is down. So again, you have to look at their operations. You have to look at where they're located. You have to look at the local labor supply. Do they have the right kind of talent in order to continue? Um, and you have to look at, at the overall economic environment. Yeah. And Mary, you said it requires a virtual army of auditors. Is that really the truth? I mean, do companies just have to step up and provide that, or are there ways around that in a more, in a more cost-efficient way to do these things? Well, it, it comes down to, you know, the vendor says, trust me. Our study found that uh, a majority of the companies, we asked, you know, what are some of the ways that you do uh, kick the tire, so to speak? Um, what a lot of companies do will say, let's identify, you know, 200 out of 2,000 suppliers globally that we consider to be key suppliers, and we'll get pretty close up to them. We will maybe send people on site. We will have detailed conversations with them. We may ask them to fill out checklists to get a sense of how prepared they are uh, to continue in business uh, in the face of a, either physical disruption, political turmoil, or some other severe disruption. But that's where it kind of breaks down. They say, well, we'll just kind of cover the top, top 200. The rest of it is, you know, you have your procurement people probably asking vendors, you know, are you prepared? You know, what hap- are you prepared if there's a fire in your major facility? Do you have backups? And, you know, if they want the business, they're going to say yes. But how do you verify? How frequently should a company be conducting supplier assessments? Well, we did ask that. We asked for a range in our in our survey, uh, and it's. I think it depends on the company and the type of materials and the business model and so forth. I think it's it's probably dangerous to try and make a sweeping generalization, but I'll go ahead and do that uh, based on what we heard from people we spoke with that generally speaking, at least once a year for your key suppliers. Oh, okay, but we, we seem to be talking, any discussion of risk management seems to always break down into two categories. One is the possibility of natural disasters or even, you could say, terrorist threats, things that are outside the control of both supplier and buyer. That's number one. And then number two is the question of supplier stability, which, of course, is within the power of the supplier. I'm wondering which of those is considered more of a potential disruption risk today, or is it even possible to say? Andrea, do you have a perspective on that? Um, I don't think it's possible to say at this this point in time, but one thing I do think that should be considered is that when a risk occurs, even if it's an unexpected risk, the, the thing an organization should focus on is how they're going to handle that risk and react to the risk and how fast they're going to react to that risk um, to mitigate situations. And a lot of times what you'll see is that um, if you have good supplier relationships, um, whenever a a major disaster happens or or even a a small risk, you can actually go to some of your other suppliers to kind of help you um, 
to overcome the disruption and kind of get back and in, in, uh, um, in action faster. Um, there have mm. been organizations that have had factories that have had fires and various things, but within a couple of days, they are back in operation because they were able to use their relationships to, 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 to get things going again. Of course, you're assuming that a company has other suppliers and is not trapped in a sole supplier situation. So maybe that's part of a, a part of a program right there is to make sure that you're not caught in that situation. Absolutely. You, again, it, it's very important from, a, um, from an organization's perspective to, to establish those relationships with multiple suppliers. You definitely don't want to have um, a sole source supplier and, and not have backups. Where should the emphasis of a good supply chain risk management program rest? Should it be on prevention or should it be on response? I would say those things, but preparedness is, is the most important thing of all. I mean, you really have to find out what you don't know. I mean, you have to have a mindset at the board level and at the C-suite level that, that says, what would we do if X, Y, Z did happen? It's that mindset that needs to permeate the, the leadership teams uh, to give you the awareness to, to look for those things that might come out and bite you, right? And then to say, well, how, how can we protect ourselves better from those things? So, again, I think, you know, since the tsunami in J Japan two and a half years ago, I hear over and over again from companies that they're taking a, a very different view of, of risk. There's this one gentleman who, uh, who is a CFO, but he's also the chief risk officer. He put it this way. He said, we've gone from thinking about the 100-year possible event. He said supply chain disruption risk now resides as one of our top 10 enterprise risks. Okay, And I, I think we heard that from Kimberly Clark. We heard that from ATMI. Uh, again, the tsunami, the tsunami and the severity of that event was was quite a wake-up call. And so, you know, I think we're going to continue to see more attention being paid to this. Okay, at least somebody's learning then. Right? I mean, there's some positive aspect here. I mean, I get this impression from reading your study that a lot of people have, are just asleep. But you're, you just suggested that, that those events did alter the mindset of a number of companies and that they are taking action accordingly. Well, and you know, I've asked some of the CFOs that, that I've interviewed as part of this work, I, I ran those stats by them. I said, you know, does this surprise you that three quarters of companies uh, admit that they were hit by a major risk and disruption in the last two years? And the answer is no, that doesn't surprise us. Okay. Why? Just the complexity of doing business globally these days, uh, the pressure after the after the recession for companies to um, rationalize their supply chains in an effort to win greater price volume discounts, right? So there's this. It's a very complex world to do business in these days, and it's they aren't surprised. Yeah. All right, so in addition to uh, an alternative supplier strategy, not getting trapped by a, in a sole supplier situation, what are the other elements of a good supply chain continuity program? Well, one, one would be to, um, to assess your, your safety stock situation. 
you know, CFOs are, are reluctant to invest in greater safety stock because that's, you know, uh, more of a drain on your working capital, right? So, and that, that relates directly to a drag on, you know, your, your cash flow and your earnings growth or can. Uh, but if you, a lot of CFOs, not a lot, but a number of CFOs have told me that, and our study did show that some number, I'd say about a third of the companies, uh, went to the trouble of reassessing those, their level of, of safety stock. And some are actually taking steps to increase that safety stock. So, for instance, you know, before the tsunami, one CFO told me, we used to keep three days of inventory on hand at our distribution facility. Uh, we then started to ask ourselves, gee, you know, maybe we need a week's worth. Maybe we need a month's worth. What would happen if our supply chain was severely disrupted for four weeks, six weeks? So they're having those conversations, Bob. Yeah. Andrea, do you find that companies are, are waking up to the effect that the, maybe they have, they've already in advance identified the individuals who would take charge in an emergency situation? I'm thinking specifically of Cisco with its war room that was uh, kind of put into action within hours of the tsunami in Japan. Uh, do you see similar type of actions being planned at, at companies today? I guess I do think organizations are, are taking those steps to, um, to, to develop that, that continuity. Um, and, and some of them have identified the internal and external partners. And I think that's essential um, for any development of, of a supply chain continuity plan. You have to know who your internal and external, external partners are. And you have to uh, include the roles and functions of your extended supply chain. Everyone has to know their, their job and know their place and, 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 and know what, what actions they must perform in, in, uh, when a disruption occurs. There's always the question of how do you prove the value of a non-event? In other words, if you have a good risk management program and you prevent disaster from happening, well, you don't really know what it is, what, what cost you avoided. Mary, I'm wondering how you make the case with top management from a financial perspective of the need for a really good supply chain risk management program, because you're going to be spending some money and resources up front. So how do you convince the boardroom or the, or the C-suite to move forward in an effective way? Well, I think, Bob, you have to build the argument that says, you know, here's a, a downside scenario if we don't prepare. However, however, if we do prepare properly, if we do think through contingency planning in the right way, these, you know, these are the likely con consequences, okay? So you have to look at the alternatives. You have to do some scenario development, and you have to be articulate. You have to really articulate to the board or the C-suite the difference between the huge potential price of inaction and the relatively small cost of being um, prepared. Yeah. I mean, you can build an ROA that way. I mean, you can back out the numbers specifically. And, and remember, it's not just your own direct vendors. What about the vendors of your key customers? If, if you're, if you are like ATMI and, you know, the bulk of your revenues come from 15, uh, life sciences organizations, if something happens, to several of them, or if it's macro, you might have the whole sector impacted. So you can work out the, the math and say, what happens to our revenue stream 
if this sector uh, isn't buying from us for a month. Mm-hmm. So there is a dollar amount you could put on it to a certain extent, and that I imagine would that's the language that they speak up there in the C-suite, isn't it? So that would probably sure. have some impact. Yeah. But you can't always be chasing the past. You can't say, well, there was a terrible tsunami, so we had to prepare for the next tsunami. Or there was a hurricane, so we better get ready for a hurricane. Because it, it seems almost guaranteed that the next disaster is going to be something that was an unanticipated and didn't happen before. Right, Andrea? And in that case, how do you, uh, you, you have to take a more general approach to, to risk management, right? Uh, yes, you do have to take a more general approach. Um, but also, anytime you've had to deal with um, disruptions in the past, that's even more preparation for the next time something does occur. Um, it's kind of put, it's almost training for the organization um, so that they are ready. But yes, you do almost have to take a, um, a more general approach, but um, you just want to make sure that you are are focused on, on identifying what you can. Everything can't be identified, but you want to identify what you can and you want to be able to, to, to mitigate um, risk and just have plans in place. Another thought on that too, uh, Bob, is there's offense and defense. Uh, I had one CFO tell me that we look at this as an opportunity to be prepared in a way that our competitors are not. So when something happens, and it's going to, if we can mitigate or respond more quickly, more effectively than our competitors, then that becomes an advantage for us. Yeah. So I think that's kind of smart thinking. Thinking about risk is the flip side of opportunity. Well, I guess that's what it's all about. It's a fascinating and, and critical subject. I wish we had more time to talk about it. Unfortunately, we are out of time, though. I will link to the APQC study in the show notes for this podcast. But in the meantime, thank you so much, Andrea Stroud, Mary Driscoll. Thanks for being with us today. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was Andrea Stroud and Mary Driscoll of APQC, the American Productivity and Quality Center. Thank you for listening. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch over 1,000 videos, and access all of our other content including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.